Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my chat with Rutger Bregman about humankind. First, though, I wanted to let you know about our revamped website at booksonpod.com. You can now sort through past shows by episode number, book title, author's last name, or by subject. For instance, pick the psychology or science and medicine category for my conversation with Kevin Dutton on black and white thinking. This is Kevin Dutton, author of Black and White Thinking, The Burden of a Binary Brain in a Complex World. And you are listening to Books on Pod with Trey Elling. Hello, readers. Rutger Bregman is a historian, a writer at The Correspondent, and a best-selling author whose new book is titled Humankind, A Hopeful History. Rutger, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? Thanks for having me, man. I'm good. How are you? I'm doing very well, thank you. So what was your goal with Humankind? Well, what I wanted to do is um, to tell the story of a scientific revolution that many people may have missed. Um, In the last couple of decades, scientists from very diverse disciplines, um, anthropologists, archaeologists, sociologists, psychologists, you name it, have been moving from a quite cynical view of human nature, of who we are basically as a species, to a much more hopeful view. But many of these Scientists and specialists, you know, they're so specialized that they often don't know what's going on in the field next to theirs. And uh, there was one moment when I was talking to a Danish psychologist. She, she'd done some path-breaking research into how people respond to emergencies, say someone's drowning or someone's being attacked in the street. And she discovered, you know, based on CCTV footage, that in 90% of all cases, people help each other. So she was telling me about her research and I was telling her about, you know, what I learned from evolutionary psychology and biology, for example, uh, different disciplines. And she said, oh, my God. So it's happening there as well. Um, And that's when I realized someone got to write this book, right? Because uh, if the specialists don't notice what's going on in the field next to theirs, then maybe someone needs to try and connect the dots and to show that something bigger is going on. And one of the first examples you cite regarding humans wanting to do good by other humans, especially in catastrophic situations, was what happened in New Orleans in the immediate aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. And it actually goes against the common belief of what occurred. So what actually happened there? Well, the story that we're always told is that civilization is just a thin veneer, just a thin layer. And that below that lies raw human nature. That deep down people are just selfish, selfish and, and nasty. And that especially during emergencies or during sudden moments of crisis, we, you know, we behave very badly. And we start looting and plundering. And that's obviously the story that people from around the globe were told about what was happening in New Orleans, right? Back then, is that, you know, there were, there was, there were these all these cases of looting and plundering and there was massive violence and... People were basically behaving like beasts, or at least that was the story that was in the news uh, everywhere. Um, it was only um, weeks or even months later that you know proper researchers actually you know did a thoughtful analysis of, of you know what are the actual facts of what what really happened on the ground, and it turns out that almost all of these terrible stories were just rumors. You know they were not based on facts, and we now actually know that. What happened was pretty much the opposite. You could call it an explosion of cooperation. And it's something that almost uh, always happens in a moment of crisis and disaster, is that people start cooperating on a massive scale. 
people from the left to the right, rich, poor, young, old. In the US, there's a disaster research center. Um, and, and the scientists over there have, have done more than 700 case studies since the 1960s of, of disasters around the globe, you know, in Japan, in India, in the US, in the Netherlands, uh, pretty much everywhere. And um, they, they find the same pattern again and again. You know, when things get tough, people pull together. That's basically what they do. It's just that the story that's in the news at, at the time is almost always the opposite. And this extends to how fiction portrays the way that humans treat one another in unique and perilous circumstances. Most everybody is familiar with the story told in the classic book, The Lord of the Flies, but that was pure fiction, a figment of William mm -hmm. Golding's active imagination. But a real-life version of this story really did happen near Tonga in the mid-1960s, with several mm -hmm. boys stranded on a deserted island for more than a year. How did this play out versus Lord of the Flies? Well, it's a very, very different story in almost every single way. The real Lord of the Flies is the opposite of the fictional Lord of the Flies. So if we start with the fictional story again, it's a clear example of, of this veneer theory, right? This idea that our civilization is only a thin layer. Uh, because in the, you know, in the fictional story, you've got these kids who are very well educated. They come from really nice... British boarding schools, but then they um, end up on this uninhabited island after a plane has gone down, and they're the only survivors, and very quickly they turn into savages. You know, that's basically what, what happens in the novel. At the end of the novel, three of the kids are dead, and they the others behave really badly and violently, and I guess the message is, this is what you get, right? You can either have freedom or order and security, but if you give people freedom uh, and, and allow them to do what they want, uh, you'll have to give up the order and security, right? People will behave in a horrible way, right? So you can't have both. Um, now, this is a story that's been, you know, told to millions and millions of children around the globe. I remember reading it when I was 17 years old. You know, it's a famous novel here in the Netherlands as well. And um, I remember feeling quite cynical after I read it. It was like, uh, well, no more Harry Potter for me, right? And now, I'm, now I only want, want uh, the real deal because this is probably what kids are really like. It was only when I was researching this book that I started to think, well, hey, maybe, maybe this, this actually isn't a realistic portrayal of human nature. Maybe it's just um, another version of this old idea, you know, this old cynical idea. Um, and then I thought, well, has it ever really happened? You know, has there ever been a case in all of world history that real kids shipwrecked on a real island? And how did they behave, right? Now, obviously, it's, it's hard to study this scientifically because it turns out to be rather hard to convince parents to send their kids to uninhabited islands. But uh, uh, I thought, well, maybe there's, there's, there's been a natural experiment. Indeed. And indeed, as you mentioned, uh, I could find one case. In 1966, there were um, six boys in Tonga, an island group in the Pacific Ocean, who were actually part of a British boarding school. And, um, well, they didn't really enjoy school. They didn't really like the lessons. They didn't like the food from the school cantina. And um, at some point they said, you know what, let's go on an adventure. And what they did is they uh, borrowed, <laughs> or they called it borrowed. Some others would have, uh, would have said, well, they stole a boat. <laughs> and... Um, they, uh, they went out sailing, but then the classic thing happened, you know, already uh, that night they ended up in a storm 
and it was a really terrible storm so it, it pr pretty much destroyed their 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 boat and they drifted for eight days you know with very little food very little water so that was that was very um hard for them but then on the eighth day they saw land just a small small tiny island an island called Atta um, to the south of, of Tonga and they shipwrecked there and amazingly they managed to survive for 15 months you know for more than a year and um, if you ask the question well how did they survive and the answer is well by <laughs> by behaving uh, in a way that's you know completely the opposite of the fictional Lord of the Flies so the real Lord of the Flies is a story of friendship of cooperation of loyalty of trust um they they work together amazingly well in teams of two you know two to be on the lookout for ships two to tend to the garden uh, two to cook the food uh, sometimes they ended up in fights i mean they were teenagers the youngest was 13 years old the oldest was 16 years um so that happens uh but then what they did is one would go to one side of the island the other would go to the other side of the island cool off a little bit and then come back and say sorry and that's how it happened every, every time so um well long story short i managed to track down some of the original lord of the flies children who are now men in their 70s right so it's a long time ago more than 50 years uh but i managed to track them down and interview them and uh yeah bring some attention to this story and now it's a, it's actually become quite huge so then i was going to be a hollywood movie about it etc so it's uh, exceeded all my expectations Oh, that's great. I hadn't heard that. And there's also a, a really cool story with the captain who ends up rescuing them as well and the lifelong friendships that form from that. And I highly recommend people check out Humankind to learn more about that one. In part one of this book, which is titled The State of Nature, you ask what makes us unique. In search of an answer, you detail a decades-long experiment conducted by a biology professor and one of his students at Moscow State University beginning... I believe in the late 1950s. What was the study and how did it ultimately help you answer that question? So one of the oldest and most fascinating questions uh, that scientists ask is what makes human beings unique? Why have we conquered the globe? Why not the Neanderthals or some of the other hominid species that were around 50,000 years ago? Or why not the chimpanzees or the bonobos? What is our secret superpower? And for a long time, we like to believe that our secret superpower is our intelligence, right? That we have these huge brains and that must have made the difference. But there are two strong counter arguments here. In the first place, well, Neanderthals actually have much bigger brains, right? So that sort of complicates things. And the other thing is that um, other animals are actually quite smart as well. If you do an intelligence test and you let, uh, say, a human toddler compete with a chimpanzee and a bonobo and a pig quite often the animals actually win, you know? Human toddlers seem to be really dumb and it's only, you know, when they grow up and learn stuff from other humans that they, um, that they become smarter. But let's be honest, individually humans are relatively stupid, right? I mean, I can count to 10, but I doubt very much that I could have come up with a numerical system on my own, right? So most of the stuff we, we get from others. So there, there's now a theory in biology that is very much the opposite of this, the more cynical view uh, of, of what our evolution has been. Mm -hmm. um, and it's called survival of the friendliest. So what biologists now argue is that for decades, it was actually the friendliest among us who had the most kids and had the biggest chance of passing on their genes to the next generation because friendliness was adaptive. It was 
you know, an evolutionary advantage. It helped you to survive. Um, and what they also argue is that this is actually our secret superpower because this friendliness, this ability to cooperate, uh, has enabled us to build a culture of, of a size that's unknown of in, in the animal kingdom. And it has enabled us to, in the end, you know, build cathedrals and spaceships, etc. So it's a very different answer uh, from the cynical answer. And you're absolutely right. There's, there's one really important experiment that was done by this Russian scientist, Dmitry Belyev. It's one of the most powerful pieces of evidence we have here. So it's, it's a complicated story, but I'll try to explain it, <laughs> you know, in, in, in a short way. Um, what, what Dmitry wanted to do is to see if he could domesticate an animal that has never been domesticated before. You know, as we know that domesticated animals are, you know, just more friendly and tame than their wild ancestors, right? Uh, we all, there's also something called domestication syndrome. This is something that all domesticated animals have in common. And what do we see with them? Well, domesticated animals are, uh, you know, have, have thinner bones. They're a little bit more childish and playful. They have smaller brains, etc., etc. And what he wanted to see, uh, Belyev, is if he could basically domesticate an animal in just a, a couple of years or a couple of decades, basically, something that must have, uh, you know, taken hundreds uh, of years in 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 history, right? It took a long time to domesticate pigs or, or cows. But so what he started to do is to, um, he, he used actually silver foxes, the, the, an animal that never been domesticated before, started in the 1950s, and he started selecting for friendliness. So only like the, the one or 2% friendliest of the silver foxes, which at the time, you know, when he started were still really aggressive, um, only they, you know, were, were um, well, he actually sort of selected them and then let them have kids, etc. And then uh, generation after generation, he took the friendliest um, to also have kids. Um, and it's really, really striking because what he saw was the development of this domestication syndrome. So he managed to replicate this process of domestication that must have taken, you know, as I said, hundreds of years in the, in the wild. But when he did it on purpose, uh, he could do it much quicker. Um, what was most interesting is that when they started to do intelligence tests, it's that actually these uh, friendlier foxes also turn out to be smarter, especially, you know, they had higher social intelligence. They were better at learning from each other and, and from other humans, which is very strange, right? If you think about it, it's one of the researchers said that if you want a smart fox, you don't select for intelligence, but you select for friendliness. Now, why is this so important, this whole story about domestication? The reason is that scientists now suspect that we humans were also domesticated. If we compare ourselves to our ancestors, you know, who lived 40, 50,000 years ago, if we, for example, compare the skeletons of Homo sapiens today with those of 30, 40, 50,000 years ago, it seems to be really clear, actually, that we're domesticated. You know, we have thinner bones, we have smaller brains. Um, and um, we, in a way, <laughs> you know, we almost literally look more, um, friendly, you know, than our, than our ancestors. It's really striking if you look at, the, at, at how the skulls, uh, how our skulls have changed. So the theory is that actually the, we have, have always, have also been domesticated. Then the question is obviously, who has done that? And the answer is, we've done it ourselves. So there was for a very long time, a process of self-domestication, um, where um, indeed, as I said, it was just the friendliest among us who had a bigger chance of passing on their genes to the generation, or 
to put it more simply, nice guys finish first. Um, uh, they, they just have more kids. And if you do that for a very long time, well, as a species, you domesticate yourself. And, you know, this, for a long time, we had the idea that domesticated animals are just, you know, lame and stupid and not very smart, right? We often talk about, uh, about cows and pigs in that way and, and sheep. But the opposite is actually true. Um, if you um, domesticate an animal, then individually, indeed, the brain size shrinks. But these brains become much better connected, you know, because they become more social. So, in a way, you could say that Neanderthals are like MacBook Pros, right? Like really good computers, but without Wi-Fi. And in the process of domestication, we, we made a, a MacBook Air, right? Instead of a MacBook Pro. So maybe smaller computer power, uh, computing power, but with Wi-Fi. So much better connected. And if you connect a lot of, you know, not very smart people, together they're incredibly smart. And that's basically um, the story of humans. That's the secret of our success. There are moments, though, throughout history, both in real life and popular scientific studies, that refute this idea that humans are inherently good. One of the most <clears throat> infamous examples from research psychology is the Stanford Prison Experiment, where nine students serve as prisoners under the thumb of nine others who were tabbed as prison guards. The study's lead investigator, Philip Zimbardo, had to call the whole thing off after six days because of the chaos and trauma that ensued, thus supposedly proving how easily humans are corrupted by power. But how did you mm -hmm. learn that the Stanford prison experiment was about as lifelike as your average reality TV show, Rucker? <laughs> well, after the Second World War, obviously people were looking for an explanation. How could this have happened? How could people have been so horrible? How do you explain the ethnic cleansing, the genocide, Auschwitz, etc. And what happened in the 50s and the 60s is that there was a new discipline, a young discipline that was basically just created with a lot of young, young researchers, you know, who wanted to make a career, basically. And the discipline was called social psychology. And what social psychologists did at the time is they created a new version, a sort of scientific sounding and looking version of veneer theory. You know, it was basically just the old idea that people deep down are bad. Um, but they um, they came, came up with, with new versions of that idea. And I think the Stanford Prison Experiment is, is a classic example here. So it became incredibly famous. It's still today in all the textbooks of psychology. You know, if you study psychology anywhere in the world, they're probably going to tell you about the Stanford Prison Experiment. And indeed, the standard story is that Philip Zimbardo started his experiment with really nice students who called themselves pacifists. But then very quickly, when he made some of them into guards and some of them into prisoners and put them in this fake prison in the basement of Stanford University, very quickly, um, the guards turn into, well, basically monsters. You know, they, they started to behave in a very nasty and sadistic way. And... Um, this is a story that became super famous, you know, so many documentaries and plays and films and Hollywood movies. You know, there's even a film with John Travolta uh, about it. It comes back again and again, this, this, this experiment. Now, what is so shocking is that only a couple of years ago, a French sociologist, Thibault Le Texier, was the first one to go into the archives of the Stanford Prison Experiment. And what he discovered there was that the whole experiment is basically a lie. Um, I, I, I can't really put it 
you know, <laughs> any 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 more nice nicely than that because it's it's really what it is. The the French book that is called the history of a lie. Sadly, it's not been translated into English. But um, what what Tibalichik Shea found is that um, the researchers, including Philip Zimbardo, very specifically instructed these students to be, behave as horrible and as sadistic as possible. Many of the students said that they didn't want to do it. They said, you know, that's that's not who I am. Uh, you know, uh, if it were up to me, we would just have a good time together and play cards and make music or something like that. Uh, make it into some kind of pacifistic commune in this prison. Um, but then the researchers said, no, 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 you don't understand. You got to do this because we need this, you know, we need these results. Because if we can show that prisons are horrible environments that create sadistic people, then we can go to the press and say, we got to reform the whole prison system, the whole criminal justice system in the United States. And that's what you want, right? You're all these liberal hippies. Come on, help us with this, and, and it'll be a good thing. And that's how uh, some, only around a third of the guards, were, were, were convinced. Um, so, yeah, it's in, it, in many ways, it's pretty much the opposite. And uh, you're right, it, it very much reminds you of how reality television works, right? So... Uh, <laughs> Any producer of reality television will tell you that if you put people on an uninhabited island or in a fake prison or, you know, in a golden cage or something like that, and you just let the cameras roll and you don't interfere, well, it's going to be terrible for ratings. You know, it's 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 really bad television because people will just play cards together and have a good time. So what do you do as producer of television? Well, you lie, you deceive, you try to set people up against each other, etc., etc. And then maybe something small happens that you can take out of context, etc., etc. It's it's hard, you know. It's a difficult job to be a producer of reality television, uh, reality television. Um, so um, yeah, I, I guess the shocking thing here is not. I mean, there's a lot of bad science out there, but that this incredibly bad science scientific experiment that pretty much tells you nothing about human nature or it tells you the opposite of, of what you know uh, Philip Zimbardo says it tells us um, that it became so famous right and that it's still today so many people know about it and it's in all the psychology textbooks even though it's completely fake why did this idea of coercion in the name of a greater good help you better understand how so many Germans could carry out some of the most horrific crimes against other humans in history with the Holocaust. Hmm. Well, look, it's it's obviously the big question that hangs over my book. If you're going to write a book about human kindness and our ability to cooperate and work together and, and human decency in general, then there's obviously the question, but what about Auschwitz? But what about all the horrific things to, we do to one another? Isn't it true that human beings are also the cruelest species in the animal kingdom? I mean, we do horrible things that no other animal would dream of, right? I've, I've never heard of a panda that, you know, tries to organize some kind of concentration camp, for example. That's, that's a singularly human thing to do. So um, when you sort of say veneer theory is too simplistic, no, civilization is not a thin veneer, obviously you have to come up with a much more complex and layered explanation um, of, of how sometimes people can do horrible things. And one of the important things to focus on is that indeed human beings sometimes do the most terrible things in the name of friendliness and in the name of loyalty and comradeship. I've got one chapter in my book about German soldiers during the Second World War. In 1944 and 1945, um, 
they were still fighting very hard, these German soldiers, and Allied psychologists couldn't understand it. You know, why are they still fighting, fighting, fighting? Why don't they just give up? It's clear that they're going to lose the war. I mean, even especially after D-Day and the Russians were coming from the east. I mean, it was clear that the whole war was a lost cause for the Germans. But why were there so few deserters? And at first they thought, well, these Germans must have been brainwashed. Right, there must have been some, must be some incredibly powerful ideology of Nazism that 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 lets them fight, fight, uh, and, and let them keep going. But then they started interviewing prisoners of war, um, conducted hundreds of interviews, and they actually discovered that they were they were completely wrong about it. What was what was in fact the case is that most soldiers were not that ideologically motivated. Um, and didn't care all that much about the Grand Nazi ideology. I mean, it was important, especially for people higher up in the military, but for sort of the average drafted soldier, it was much less important. And what kept these people fighting was was something much more human, you could say. It was loyalty, and it was comradeship, or Kameradschaft, as, as they say in German. Um, and the German army command knew all about this. So what they trying to do is to keep friends together you know um as for as long as possible when they had uh you know um, rearrangements with the army they always tried to make sure that people who already knew each other from from experiences uh, on the battlefield that they would stay together because they knew that comradeship and loyalty you know was in, an incredibly potent force in war um, now, this is obviously not a comfortable message, right? It's really not comfortable. It's quite disturbing, in fact, that very often when we do bad things, we think we're on the right side of history. But it's, um, it is one of those paradoxes in human nature. Well, you bust a number of myths regarding uh, popular sentiments on psychological research or real-world situations that people have just gotten wrong for a long time. I was maybe most amused that you also busted a myth involving the inherent goodness of babies, Rutger. What was the groundbreaking Hmm. research by Kylie Hamlin in 2007 at Yale's Baby Lab? And how did Kylie disprove these initial findings with green beans and graham crackers just a few years later? Yeah, well, it's a real fun experiment, you know, what what some of these researchers have been looking at for a very long time, like, is, is human nature a blank slate, right? Do we just arrive in this world with no intuitions about what is good and bad? And is everything, you know, cultural? Or is there already something of a moral sense within us from a very early age, right? maybe actually built into us. It's in, in, in our DNA or in our genes. And um, there's some really exciting research from indeed the baby lab. <laughs> they do this um, also quite funny research um, where they've, they've shown that um, babies from a very early age, they have a preference for, yeah, but basically pro-social behavior. Uh, they do this with um, animations, right? They show a very simple animation and they try to see um, you know, whether the babies prefer the helpful figure or the not so helpful. And um, it's, I mean, there's still a lot of debate going on here, but I think there's there's some quite convincing evidence that points in the direction now that indeed there seems to be something of a moral sense from a very early age um, with these babies. But then the dark side here is that they've also discovered that xenophobia seems to be present in us from a very early age as well. So what they did is 
um, in one experiment, they um, they gave they gave people to uh, babies sort of two um, pieces of food. I think what was it called indeed beans and 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 uh, graham crackers or something like that. I'm not familiar with all the American stuff to be honest. <laughs> Green beans and, and graham crackers, correct? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so they first try to see what particular food the babies prefer, right? And um, what what's interesting then is that after that they show um, again the animation of a helpful character and a not so helpful character, but they also showed um, whether that helpful character had the same preference as the baby or a different preference, right? The same food preference or 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 um, or a different one. They also like beans or also graham crackers. And then it's it's a little bit more disturbing because what they found is that um, yes, if the helpful character has the same food preference as the baby, then yes, the babies prefer that character as well. They 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 really like that that figure. But if there seems to be um, a disconnect there, you know, they they have different opinions, then suddenly the babies start preferring the antisocial character, you know, in the animation. They're like, ooh, that's my guy. <laughs> um, so that's rather disturbing. It's some, I mean. It's obviously hard to hard to draw sort of definitive scientific conclusions on the basis of these kind of experiments. It would be really helpful if 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 we could just uh, you know read the thoughts of babies in, in those experiments. But you know they're very carefully conducted, and there are there there are more and more of those experiments done now around the globe. And I think there's in, indeed striking evidence that this xenophobia or our in-group preference is that we just we just like people who are like us, you know who think like us, who look like us, who have the same food preferences, who like graham crackers just as we like uh, like them. Um, that is present in human nature from a very early age as well. And um, yeah, it's, it's, it's two sides of the same coin. It's two sides of the same beast, basically. It's, uh, it's what's, I think, most essential to human nature is that on the one hand, we are, we've evolved to be friendly, but on the other hand, we just want to be liked and we just want to be part of a group and we don't, yeah, we don't really love people who are um, um, not not like us, basically. And that's that's the difficulty that we always need to try to overcome. One of the most counterintuitive ideas floated in humankind is that psychologist Paul Bloom argues against empathy. Why does he mm. do so? And how might this uh, and how might empathy and xenophobia go hand in hand? Yeah, yeah. That was a really counterintuitive and striking idea for me as well. But it makes sense if you think about it. So what Paul Bloom, the, the, the psychology professor, does is he describes empathy as a searchlight, as a spotlight, right? Emp what empathy does, it, it helps you to focus on a certain person or a certain group. Um, oft often the way empathy and the news work is very similar, right? Uh, or they actually work together. So, for example, there's a news story about a little girl who has fallen down a well. And then there's this massive empathy in, in the whole country, right? And people are obsessed with the story. They follow, follow it 20 hours uh, a day, seven days a week. A uh, lot of people donate a lot of stuff to this to this little children, uh, kid and the, and the, the family, etc. Um, so it really works as a searchlight, a spotlight. It doesn't help you to zoom out, right? Um, right now, there are more than 40 million kids in the, in the world who die of easily preventable causes, 
such as malaria or measles or diarrhea. And if you donate, you know, a fairly small amount of money to a highly effective charity, say the Against Malaria Foundation, you could, you know, you could save a kid's life. But um, empathy doesn't really help here because it's, uh, it's, we don't have an identifiable victim here, right? Um, so in that sense, empathy can often d distract you or, or even yeah, lead you astray. I mean, think about the, um, the eternal Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Empathy, I think, uh, helps to um, create this cycle of violence that goes on and on and on. Because think about what happens. There is an attack, you know, Israelis attack Palestinians. There are a lot of casualties on the Palestinian side. Then there's a lot of anger, obviously, and empathy for, you know, uh, that Palestinians have for Palestinians. And there, and there's a cry for vengeance. There's also, you know, scientific research that suggests that people who have stronger feelings of empathy also are, are um, also want uh, more vengeance, right? So, um, and then it goes on and on and on because then, you know, Hamas starts shooting rockets and then what do Israelis want, etc., etc. So you, you could easily argue that the problem in the Middle East is not a lack of empathy, but actually too much empathy for people who are just like you. Now, then you could say, yeah, but we just should scale it up, right? And feel empathy for everyone, right? Not just for the people who are similar to us, but feel it for everyone. But the sad truth is that that's not just not how humans work. You know, we can't do it. We're not some kind of computers who can infinitely scale it up. Uh, empathy, the way it works in the human brain, it's, it's really a spotlight. So as you focus on a certain person or a group of people, the rest of the world, um, you know, goes into the background. Uh, there is an alternative, though, that psychologists call uh, compassion. Uh, compassion is also, uh, you can really make the distinction, you can even see it in the brain. So when people have feelings of, of compassion, that's different, you know, different parts of the brain light up than when they feel um, empathy. And um, empathy is not about feeling the same things as the other person, sort of mirroring the other person, but it is about recognizing, uh, or sorry, sorry, compassion I'm, I'm talking about here. Compassion is about recognizing, um, yeah, someone else's suffering and about trying to do something about it. Um, uh, whatever you can. Um, so yeah, it's it's again, it's 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 paradoxical, right? Uh, but I think it's important to understand these psychological processes uh, because it it could help us to you know prevent conflict and a lot of hate and suffering. Humans have proven repeatedly throughout history that power corrupts. This idea kept rolling through my head as I read Humankind. So you can imagine how elated I was when I saw the section titled How Power Corrupts. You have an interesting perspective on why the concept of God came to be, and it has to do with leaders influencing far more than the 150 people that scientists say the average person can actually manage to stay in comfortable social contact with. What is your theory on the original reason for God? Yeah, this is a really fascinating new idea in anthropology. So... To understand it, we got to start with looking at the uh, way we live for the biggest part of our history, right? For the biggest part of our history as humans, around 95% of, of all the time we've been on this planet, um, we were nomadic hunter-gatherers and we lived in relatively small-scale societies. And those societies operated as a reverse dominance hierarchy. Uh, there's a lot of anthropological evidence for that. A reverse dominance hierarchy is a complicated word for a very simple idea. So what you have is a situation where the group controls the leaders, basically. And the leaders have to be very humble. 
They cannot be narcissists. Um, they, you know, their lead leadership is temporary. It's, it's based on real achievements. So they have actual skills. You know, they're good at storytelling, for example, or hunting, or, and then it makes sense for them to lead. Um, but it's also always temporary, and it's, it's very important for them to be humble. So as soon as they become too arrogant, then uh, the group basically cracks down on those leaders. Shame is incredibly important in those kind of societies. And um, I, mean, I think that it's not a coincidence that we, hu we humans were the only animal in the animal kingdom with the ability to blush, right? Which is a, a telling fact. You know, why would we blush? Um, well, because it helps us to cooperate. Um, and then everything changed around 10 to 15,000 years ago when humans settled down and they started living in villages and cities and society scaled up. Um, humans have evolved for face-to-face -face contact, right? So that we could look one another in the eye. This is another um, really peculiar thing about humans is that we're the only animal among primates with uh, white sclera, as they call it. So sclera is sort of the, the area around the iris in your eye. And with humans, it's white. With all the other primates, you know, it's it's dark, it's brown or black, which means that with all the other primates, the bonobos and the chimpanzees, you can't see what they're looking at, or at least it's really difficult. They don't give away their gaze. Humans give their gaze away to everyone, right? Which again, just like blushing, it helps us to establish trust. But then as society scaled up and people started living in much larger settlements and even moved to cities, all these sort of classic ways that had evolved for thousands of years to establish trust, well, they still worked on a smaller scale, but not on the bigger scale anymore. So one theory is that in order to establish trust, people needed sort of a third eye high up in the sky, you know, to make sure that strangers could actually be trusted. Uh, you, you, people will probably know that God is often described as, you know, this watchful being or, or, or you know, there's in many religions, it's uh, it's like this 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 big eye, basically, that is looking at us um, and basically making sure we behave in a moral way. So there are some anthropologists now who argue that the notion of God is an sort of an adaptive cult cultural idea that originated around the time we um, we started to live in much larger societies because these larger societies needs need something to 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 hold it all together, right? A certain glue, and the things that used to do the job, this the, the, the shame, for example, or the blushing, or that you can look one another in the eye, that was not not enough anymore. So uh, God may have been uh, one of the answers. There is immense value in our ability to nurture another life form into a greater belief of self that leads to an improved performance in said life form. How is this proven in separate studies, one involving rats and the other elementary students with what came to be known as the Pygmalion effect? Yeah, yeah. So when you talk about human nature, you can basically talk about it in two ways. So you can look at at it from the purely scientific perspective and say, okay, what is human nature really like? What is the best evidence we have from psychology, from anthropology, from archeology, span etc.? But what you can also do is see what are the effects of a certain theory of human nature? Because there are some ideas out there that have no influence on reality, right? It doesn't really matter what you think. So, um, 
I don't know, if you believe Kennedy is now on Mars or something like that and, and having a good time with uh, Elvis, um, well, you can believe that, but it doesn't really change reality. But then there are other ideas. For example, if you mistakenly believe that human beings are all selfish monsters, that have a real effect on society, right? Because if that idea spreads around, as it has done, <laughs> you know, for thousands of years, then we start adjusting our behavior in, in accordance with that idea. So we start organizing our society based on the principle that people are selfish and our schools and our workplaces and our democracies, etc. So our view of human nature also tends to be a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, this was this was indeed one of the people who discovered this was uh, Rosenthal, um, an American psychologist who did some really fascinating research in, uh, in the 60s. So what he did in one of his uh, first experiments is that he had um, he had uh, rats that he put in uh, two different cages, and and one of, there were basically two breeds of rats. So the, he had sort of the dumb rats, sort of the standard laboratory rats that were not very smart, but he also had the super smart rats, and he put them in two different cages. And there was also a sign on these cages, like here are the dumb rats and here are the super smart rats. And he asked his students to put these rats into a maze and then to record the, how, how much time it took the rats to, to find the exit of the maze. And surprise, surprise, the much smarter rats were much quicker, right? So it was a very clear finding and seemed unsurprising to the students. But then what Rosenthal told his students is that, well, actually, I've been lying to you. These are all just standard laboratory rats. So in reality, you know, they're not different at all. And at the time, people really couldn't understand the results, right? What was going on? These were just standard laboratory rats. and But still, the, the supposedly, you know, the, the, the smart rats have been labeled as the smart rats were much, much quicker. And uh, even Rosenthal, he, you know, he had difficulty publishing his results because scientific journals said, well, this, this must have been fake. You know, this can't be real. Uh, it took some time. And then Rosenthal and his colleagues realized that it was actually the way the students handled these smart rats, you know, more careful and with higher expectations, maybe a little bit more friendly, um, that uh, caused their, um, their behavior, right? So expectations are extraordinarily powerful. Um, this is called the Pygmalion effect, indeed, uh, or that's what, what Rosenthal um, called it. And, um, you know, there, we now have evidence from a lot of domains uh, where this effect exists, um, especially, for example, in, um, in the schools. So um, in some follow-up research, he discovered that if st uh, teachers have high expectations of their students, they perform much better. And obviously, if they have low expectations, they also, uh, they, they perform worse, right? And this is, what, by the way, one of the ways that racism does its, you know, poisonous work, um, because you can get this tyranny of low expectations that really influences people's behavior. Um, so yeah, the way to understand this is that humans are not islands, right? We are very much shaped and influences by, influenced by, by people around us all the time who give us certain cues, uh, even often when they don't really realize that they're actually doing that. Um, so that's, that makes talking about human nature quite complicated, right? Because it's not just about what scientific theory do you have, but it's also about what happens once you adopt a certain theory. 
Pluralistic ignorance is a fascinating concept, in part because I think it helps explain the trouble that groups get themselves into when trying to believe in something that is really tough to understand. So what is pluralistic ignorance? Yeah, this is another one of those bizarre phenomena in in psychology. So um, what sometimes happens is that someone thinks, well, um, this is crazy, but everyone else around me, you know, just behaves as as if there's nothing going on. So probably there's nothing going on, right? Um, An example that I really liked was uh, from a psychologist, Dan O'Reilly. So... Then O'Reilly, what he did, um, he studied at some top, uh, or he taught at some top American university, I think Duke University or something like that. Anyway, his audience is full of really smart kids, right? Who, you know, performed very well on the on all their tests and they got into one of the best universities in the world. And what Dan O'Reilly did in one of his first talks is he, um, he basically talked total nonsense. So he had gone to some website on the internet, uh, like a postmodern essay generator that takes all these nonsensical words and just randomly puts them together. And uh, he started reading from that. Um, and it's really interesting. There's a video of this on YouTube where you can see all the students listening and making notes uh, of this totally nonsensical nonsense that was generated by a computer in a completely random way. Uh, and, you know, with, uh, the professor was doing it for minutes and minutes and went on and on. And no one said anything. You know, no one even raised a hand. And then he also asked the question, is that clear to any, everyone? And it was like, yeah, yeah, that's clear to everyone. And then he said, well, I've just demonstrated the concept of pluralistic ignorance to you. Is that, you know, in secret, you know, or, you know, uh, many people must have thought, I have no idea what the guy is talking about but no one else is saying anything. So it probably is just me and I don't want to come across as stupid. And that's this is a way that societies can go on doing pretty crazy things for a very long time because everyone believes that they are the only ones with doubts, right? It's also, by the way, how societies can suddenly quickly change because what you need is only one person who says, or a couple of person who say, um, the emperor has no clothes, right? This is nonsense. What are we doing here? And then everyone's like, yeah, yeah, I was thinking that as well, right? So um, it's it's one of those examples of that humans are incredibly groupish and we, we really look at one another when we, when we try to think about how we should behave. Josta Block is one of the most impressive figures that you cover in humankind. How does he see managers versus the employees they are supposedly responsible for leading? And how did this happen? shape how he set up his company, Home Healthcare. Well, the second half of my book is really about um, applying the theory in practice. So if people are convinced by the first half of the book that indeed we need to move to a more hopeful view of, of human nature, then as I said, you know, it has some profound practical implications. And Jos de Bloch is indeed one of the heroes in the book because he's really taken it quite far. Um, he has a pretty big healthcare organization here in the Netherlands that is called uh, Neighborhood Care. Um, And um, what he has done when he started it is he said, we're not going to have any managers. So it's all going to be self-directed teams of nurses who will decide for themselves how they're going to organize their week, who are they going to hire as their colleagues, um, what kind of additional education they need, etc., etc. And he said from day one is, I'm going to build my organization on trust. So I trust that my 
professionals, you know, the people that work for my company, that they really care about their patients and they really care about this organization. And sure, there will be some people, maybe 1% of employees who may be a little bit lazy or I don't know, or, or, or will not have the same values as I have, but I'm gonna organize the company for the, for the 99%, right? I'm not gonna focus on the small minority of, of people who are different. And um, it's been enormously successful. So now the, the organization has 15,000 employees here in the Netherlands. Uh, it has really scaled up. Sometimes people say that, you know, this, this, this hopeful view of human nature can't be implemented in larger organizations. And I encourage them to look at, you know, an organization like, like Beurtzorg, which is pretty huge. Um, and uh, actually it delivers higher quality healthcare at a cheaper cost, according to independent evaluators. So it, it has caused quite an uproar here in the Netherlands because, you know, all the other organizations are like, oh, this is, uh, this is almost insulting to the whole management class, right? But because the question is then, yeah, why do we need them, right? Can't we just let people decide for themselves, you know, how they should do their work and, and let professionals be in the lead? Um so yeah, it's it's one of those inspiring examples of what can happen once you change your view of what humans are really like. There's a common thought here in America, Rutger, that sending nonviolent offenders to our prisons creates hardened criminals. That is because prison here sucks. The conditions are wretched. The cell, the sleeping arrangement, playtime, hostility <laughs> among inmates and among each other, the guards... This all comes together to create a miserable existence. But prison doesn't necessarily have to be that way. Why is a prison in a forest 60 miles south of Oslo, Norway, a good example of this? And what effect has it had on the prisoners there? Yeah, this is perhaps one of the most radical examples in my book about what you can do once you change your view of human nature. I think you're absolutely right, by the way. American prisons are incredibly expensive taxpayer-funded institutions to create more criminal behavior, basically, to get more criminals. That's what, it's like universities for crime. There's, there's a lot of scientific evidence that, that, that shows that, indeed, you, you, you get a lot of people in for, for minor drug crimes and they come out as hardened criminals. Um, and society pays for it, right? Even if you don't look at it from a moral perspective, if you just look at it from a financial perspective, it's just it's just a bizarre waste of wealth and money and human talent. It's um, it's really irrational. Now, what you have in Norway is a criminal justice system that it's in almost every single way the opposite of the American system, uh, and you know it's it's also quite counterintuitive, I must say. So, I had difficulty at first, you know, with wrapping my head around it. And thinking about is this is this really a good thing? Uh, but well, what do they do? Um, you have a couple of prisons there. Halden is a maximum security prison um, where you know there are a lot of people who are locked up in there because they've done horrible things. You know, raped uh, women or or killed other people, etc. You know, really hardened criminals. Um, but in Halden, they get the freedom to you know make music read books as much as they want, socialize with the guards. Um, they've got their own music studio. The, they even have their own music label that is called Criminal Records. Uh, some of the inmates at Halden Prison have uh, participated in Norwegian idols. There's, a, there's also a prison band, I think, that, you know, once uh, 
uh, was on stage with uh, the legendary Texas rockers. What's it called? ZZ Tops or something? ZZ Top, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, in almost every th- single way, it's the opposite what you think of with the prison. There's even a softer prison that's called Bastoy. And this looks like a, I don't know, some kind of utopian pacifistic commune. Um, indeed, uh, also the, 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 the guards here are free to socialize, uh, or the, the prisoners are free to socialize with the guards. The guards don't even wear uniforms. Um, some of the prisoners have jobs on the mainland. Um, it's very weird and very strange. But then you look at the scientific evidence, you look at the results, uh, and it turns out there's something called the recidivism rate in, in criminology, you know, the chance that someone will commit another crime once he or she gets out of prison. And it turns out that these prisons that don't look like prisons at all are the most effective prisons in the world, right? So Bastoy, this this pacifistic island commune, um, has the lowest recidivism rate any prison that has ever been built. Um, and the philosophy of the Norwegians is that um, when you send people back into society, you don't want to send back uh, ticking time bombs, right? The job of a prison as an institution is to create tax-paying citizens who contribute to the common good. And how do you improve people? Well, not by making them suffer. That's simply not how it works. How do you improve people? Well, obviously you want to punish them. So um, that it's, that there are consequences to what they've done. They, they are locked up, right? They can't leave the prison. But apart from that, they get the chance to develop themselves. And as I said, you know, I had difficulty because obviously you wonder how do the victims think about this, right? Or, or the family of the victims. Um, but in, in Norway, they've created a culture where people say, look, we don't want to sink to the level of the murderers or the people who've done terrible things. You know, we want to stand on the moral high ground. And as taxpayers, we want effective institutions, right? with a return on investment. And indeed, as I said, American prisons are incredibly expensive and they create more crime. So they also create, you know, all the judicial costs and police costs and healthcare costs, etc. It's just an extraordinary waste of wealth, as I said. In Norway, it's pretty much the opposite. So in Norway, it's been estimated that every euro that is um, uh, that they pay for, for this prison system, they get it back twice in lower healthcare costs and more income from uh, tax-paying citizens, you know? Um, so, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's counterintuitive, but it works so much better. And in the end, it also seems so much more civilized and humane. That is a fascinating concept, and so is uh, an idea that you float for the best remedy of racism. That would be contact. Why is contact Mm. the best remedy for racism, according to psychologist Gordon Allport in the mid-1950s and plenty of others since then? Yeah, this this really connects to what we were talking about earlier. Humans have evolved in an environment where we have face-to-face contact. Um. It's easy to forget that in an era of social media and internet and Wi-Fi, but um, it's so, so important if you want to establish and build trust is that you bring people together in real life um, where we can see each other, where we can look one another in the eye. We can see each other blush, for example. And so one of the most uh, important theories in psychology, actually one of the theories that we have the most evidence for more than 500 studies right now that all point in the same direction, 
is that contact is the best medicine we have against racism, against prejudice, uh, against hate. Um, now, it seems maybe obvious. Do you really need to do the research? Uh, but, uh, you know, as we say in science, everything is obvious once you know the answer. Um, and uh, what has now been, been, been proven convincingly is that um, if you design for diversity, basically, and if you make sure that people from an early age meet different people from different backgrounds and they also cooperate that with them, right, in schools uh, and in churches and in their neighborhood, etc., then that's like a vaccine against xenophobia and it's a vaccine against racism. Um, that's, uh, there's, there's a huge amount of evidence for that. Now, obviously, it's much easier said than done, right, because we all know what the trends are. Um, especially in the US, you know, the trends of polarization, the rich uh, uh, versus the poor and right wing versus left wing and Democrats versus Republicans and white and black, etc., etc. Um, so it's, 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 it's easier to um, sort of make the case that diversity is incre incredibly important than to just implement it. But that doesn't mean we should forget about it. It really doesn't mean that. Um, and there are, you know, uh, very power, uh, highly effective uh, organizations and activists and campaigners also in the US who, who understand that. Uh, it's so important to keep bringing people together because it's, it's relatively easy to hate someone who's far away, you know, who's an anonymous Twitter user or something like that. And you can, you know, say the most horrible things to someone. But when, when someone's standing in front of you and it turns out to be just another human being with, with hopes and dreams and maybe different views on, you know, what kind of food you should eat and... Uh, what kind of God you should worship, but it becomes so much more difficult to hate someone who's, you know, a real, alive human being standing in front of you. Um, so uh, should never forget that and always think of ways of bringing people together. Well, perhaps the best example of that is what happens when soldiers are confronted with one another at close range that essentially requires either shooting a person from just a couple feet away or straight up hand to hand contact where you're having to plunge mm -hmm. a knife or a bayonet or something like that into another human being, even if they are perceived as an enemy. Yeah, yeah. And, and what the history of warfare shows is that most soldiers who've just been drafted, right, and who have not been conditioned and brainwashed for a long time, most soldiers can't do it. So at the Battle of Waterloo and the Battle of the Somme during the Second World, uh, First World War, most casualties were not from bayonet wounds, right? Most bayonets throughout history have, have not been used, at least if, if, if they were used by uh, drafted soldiers, because it's psychologically incredibly hard and difficult to shove a bayonet down someone. Uh, through someone um, it becomes much easier once the distance increases you know once you have a gun or even even easier once you have an artillery device we know that during the first world war around 70 to 80 percent of all casualties you know were from artillery fire uh, because it's psychologically much easier to just push a button and kiss, kill a lot of people far away um, what we also know is that during that very same war that when soldiers came too close to one another that they could rediscover each other's humanity. So in the book, I talk about what happened in 1914 at Christmas when British and German soldiers heard each other singing Christmas carols in the trenches. And um, thousands and thousands of soldiers refused to keep on fighting. You know, it was like an epidemic of peace that spread on the front. And... Um, 
Actually, the generals were really in panic because it was even, you know, going upwards through the ranks and also captains and colonels, etc. were also being affected by it. And it was really difficult. So there's one military historian who's done a lot of research into this. He describes peace as this iceberg that there's there's always the threat of peace breaking out during war, right? Um, it's always, you know, what people can go back to once they, again, look one another in the eye and realize, hey, you and I are not so different, you know? You've got families at home. And, and what I read in the newspapers, you know, back at the time you had, uh, just, just like now, people, uh, newspapers like the Daily Mail and the Daily Telegraph that were full of fake news and, and hatred about all these terrible things that the Germans were supposedly doing. Um, but yeah, it, it's, as I said, it became, it, it's, it's relatively easy to hate someone once you've read something uh, in a tabloid about a supposedly terrible group of, uh, I don't know, raping refugees or something like that. But then if you actually meet them, you realize, oh, it's actually quite different. And those are just some of the many beautiful examples that you use to illustrate the good of humans in this book, Humankind, A Hopeful History. He is Rutger Bregman, a historian, a writer, at The Correspondent, and a best-selling author. The new one is another banger. Check it out. Humankind, A Hopeful History. Rutger, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this superb book. Thanks, man. Really enjoyed it. A special thanks also goes out to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. And thanks to you for listening. Join us next time when Edward Slingerland hops on to discuss Drunk, how we sipped, danced, and stumbled our way to civilization. For Books on Pod, I'm Trey Elling. Good day.